creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. I am your host, Andy J. Pizza. Do you ever feel like reaching the creative heights you're after shouldn't be this exhausting? You ever look around at the other creatives in this atmosphere that you want to exist in and be like, why, why do they make it look so effortless? Like I am sweating and disheveled and these people that are already where I want to be, they just make it look easy. I'm a big believer in effort, okay? I'm not talking about not putting effort into what you're doing. I'm not shying away from a challenge. I feel like there are challenging aspects of the creative journey. There's no doubt about it, but I do believe that that nudge, that little voice inside of you that is saying, hey, you've got access to something that would make this whole experience a lot more of a flow than a slog. And I believe that that thing, that thing that you have access to is your own personal creative genius. And although it can create an ease in your work, it can be very difficult to find it. And in this episode, I want to explore exactly how to find that thing that you can access that will make all of this a lot more of an ease and more of a flow. That thing is your creative genius. Let's find yours today. Let's go. So we got our first factor meals and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef crafted dietitian approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how factor meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low calorie. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing six to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. Chapter one, falling up. The first thing you need to do is realize that your genius is hiding. First of all, you need to realize it's hiding. Second of all, you need to know it's hiding behind an alias. It goes by a different name depending on how you and your upbringing and all the different components of your cultural fabric that you were woven into into the pockets of in your own uh, own world. Your genius goes by a different name, and that's part of the reason you're having a hard time finding it. Okay, do you ever get the sense that reaching the creative heights you're after 
isn't supposed to feel this exhausting and difficult. Like sometimes there were points where I'm like, I am at my wits end and I'm sweaty and disheveled and I haven't taken a shower in days because I'm trying to fit in one more minute of creativity so I can get where I'm trying to go. And the creative life in this way can be kind of embarrassing sometimes. Um, And maybe you have a feeling that there's something There's got to be something at my disposal. I have an inner whisper that's like, man, I know there's something that would just lift me up to those creative heights so much quicker and turn this slog into a flow, but I just can't seem to access it. And in that thing that I'm talking about, that is your creative genius. Now, I'm not talking about, I, I, I never shy away from a challenge in my creative journey. Well, that's not true. I do shy away from creative challenges all the time, but I try not to. I, it's a principle of mine not to shy away from the difficult aspects of being a creator, but I believe that it's not all supposed to be a slog. There's supposed to be an ease that comes from your own personal, creative, unique kind of genius. And your genius is what will make the rest of your work work. It's what everything revolves around. It's the thing that gives your work its depth and its potency, and it's the key to what makes it all work. Now, I'm convinced that we all have a kind of creative genius, but not everyone has found access to theirs. And I'm wondering if this is because we don't recognize it in ourselves because our culture or our upbringing called our genius by a different word. So we just, we know that thing, but we don't know that that thing is our genius. We didn't know that it was different because it was a different word for the same thing. Reaching the creative heights you're after depends on finding this access. And the key is to realize that you may not recognize your genius because in your world, it goes by a different name that is unique to where you're from. And it's thrown you off the trail. Now, being married to a British person, I'm very familiar with the truth that from culture to culture, even within the same language, there are many, many different words for the exact same thing. When I lived in the UK for five years in my early 20s, if I had ordered biscuits and gravy, my southern Indiana dish of choice at a British greasy spoon, that uh, I would have been very disappointed if they're like, okay, and they bring out a disgusting plate full of graham crackery cookies and brown gravy. Like that's, that's what that means in their language. Same language, different meaning, because there are different words for the same things. Now, some of these different words for the same things were easier to recognize than others. For instance, They call elevators lifts, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that both of these words are about going up, but it should be noted that in the UK, a rocket scientist could also technically mean someone who studied the green salad leaf arugula, Uh, and even an arugula scientist couldn't work that one out because those words are completely different. All right. And I'm briefly distracted by the idea of a arugula scientist, like a cocktail kind of mixologist, but for salads, we need that. Like, hey, I'm hello. I'm 
Bevan. I'll be your saladologist tonight. Prepare yourself, uh, uh, pr prepare yourself to experience croutons like you've never experienced croutons in your life. No hints, but I will tell you, they're the opposite of toasted. <laughs> Who wants a bite? If none of that made any sense, that's kind of my point. Because unlike lift and elevator, some words for the same thing don't make any sense. In the UK, they call that leafy green that we call arugula, they call it rocket. Okay, and that connection took me years to make. And there weren't any big consequences, just small consequences. I missed out on a few good arugula salads that I probably would have loved because they were called rocket salads over there. And I thought, man, rocket salad. I mean, sounds like a blast, but uh, doesn't all that metal and fuel get in your teeth? Um, actually, I didn't say that because I didn't, I wasn't a dad. Uh, yet. So I didn't have that terrible dad humor at my, uh, uh, I didn't have access to that kind of creative genius at the time. Now that is absolutely ridiculous, but I imagine that there would have been bigger consequences if I hadn't made the connection between other words. Like if I hadn't realized that lift and elevator did mean the same thing, this podcast probably wouldn't even exist because I would have never become an illustrator. Like I did my illustration and graphic design studies in the UK in the tallest building on campus on the top floor. They, our whole program was on level 14. And I can just imagine, what if I went in there one day and I saw a door that said stairs and I looked around for an elevator, but I only saw signs for lifts. And maybe I'm like, what is that ride sharing? I don't know what's going on in my stupid kind of American ignorance shrugs and just like, well, it is the old country. Maybe they don't have electricity yet. Stairs it is. And I just slog my backpack and giant observational drawing sketch pad and box of art supplies up 14 flights of stairs. Like by the time I get to the top floor, I would be so exhausted, sweaty, disheveled, like, I would never go back to class. That would be the beginning and the end of my creative journey. And it'd be a total shame. Why? Because I had something at my disposal that would have made reaching those creative heights so much easier if I'd only known that the thing I was looking for went by a different name. So often in my creative practice, I have felt like make-believe Andy in this story. I felt like I probably, I'm, lo I look, I'm looking around and I see these creators at this creative height. They're on the 14th floor of creativity. They're all put together, no sweat, ready for another day of creating. And I'm like, how are they doing this? I barely got started and I'm already exhausted. There must be something I'm not accessing. And I think that there is, if you are feeling like that, I think you have a creative lift access that you are not tapping into. That lift access is your creative genius that you are not tapping into because you don't know that it goes by a different name where you're from. And so you're taking the creative stairs. And it's not like the word lift. Okay, the word your family or school may have used for what your creative genius is might be 
a, as different as rocket and arugula, or even more so, the word they used to label your genius, it might sound like the opposite of genius. This whole notion was re-triggered in me recently when I was reminded that Malcolm Gladwell, uh, when he talks about genius, he says he thinks of genius as being synonymous with a word that might disguise genius to its owner. The word that Gladwell uses for genius is obsession. And when I got thinking about that, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it really punched me in the gut because everybody I know has obsession, has obsessions, and they know they have obsessions, but they don't know that they have genius. Like I have a lot of obsession, a lot of very obsessive qualities, a lot of obsessions, I got more obsession than a Calvin Klein factory outlet store, man. I got obsessions. And when I realized like this thing that we call an obsession, Malcolm Gladwell calls it genius. Why do all of these people have genius and they don't see it? Well, if you're looking for an elevator to take to the creative heights you're after, genius sounds like an elevator. It sounds like the lift right? That could get you there. But if that genius in yourself is labeled obsession, well, that sounds less like something that's going to take you to those creative heights. And it more sounds like something you could fall into and lose yourself in forever. These words are so different that instead of running towards them, we might run away from them. You would be forgiven for missing your genius if your family called your genius your obsession. And that's not even the most misleading of genius's many aliases. No one could blame you for missing that creative lift of your genius if your school called it your distraction. As many of you know, I have ADHD. I talk about it all the time. Um, and I do so on purpose. And I have for almost the whole eight years of this show um, because, you know, for, for a whole mess of reasons that we don't need to get in right now. But I have ADHD, and that means that I am a bit of a scatterbrain. I can get very easily distracted because scatterbrain, by definition, means I'm unable to have linear connective thinking. You say arugula, and I'm going to think untoasted spaceship croutons. Like, that's where I'm going to go with it, okay? I'm going to get distracted, distracted by the scatterbrain. But imagine how it felt when I realized that the world was all of a sudden after this thing, this new buzzword, creative, innovative, divergent thinking, Divergent thinking. I'm like, man, divergent thinking. But okay, like, what is this thing? I gotta, I gotta see if I can rustle up some divergent thinking. And I go look at the definition. And the definition of the divergent thinker was someone who doesn't think in a linear, connected way.
So all of a sudden I could see what was labeled distraction for me that I was sure was a rabbit hole to avoid was actually a creative lift that it could have been taking me to those creative heights with ease if only I had had the ability to step into it. But sometimes it's even worse than that. It's harder to recognize and even harder to trust than that because sometimes your genius is so hidden, it's labeled the exact opposite way. And it took me until my late 20s even to get the courage to press the up button on what I think is really my, my creative lift, my creative secret sauce, my obsession, my greatest distraction even to my illustration practice, because for me, it was discovering and diving into story and story structure and the point of story and the theory and philosophy behind story. It's an obsession of mine, as most of you know, but that, that obsession was not seen as genius where I'm from. It went by a name that made me run in the opposite direction for years. That creative lift of story wasn't labeled genius. It was labeled temptation. Temptation. The thing to not, not run towards, the thing to run away from, the thing to resist at all costs, the thing to repress. I'm sure you're thinking like, why was story an, uh, an obsession with story labeled a temptation where you're from. Some of you might know, because some of you come from similar place to, to where I come from. Um, and it, it might sound ridiculous to you, but story was labeled temptation for me. To a guy hustling, working nights, weekends on his illustration practice, trying to provide for his family with toddlers and, uh, you know, trying to help raise these Children falling into the rabbit hole of story could have definitely been seen as a distracting obsession, but a temptation? What? Come on, Andy. What? How is it a temptation? But my way into story, the thing, the curiosity, the, the white rabbit that I wanted to chase into that rabbit hole came by way of mythology, the hero's journey, the work of comparative religion scholar Joseph Campbell, and before him, Carl Jung, and these types of comparative myth scholars who would be essential to the development of how I've come to understand the power and pull of story and what got me in the gateway into obsessing, obsessing over story, um, they were seen where I'm from as the gateway into losing your religion. These are the sorts of characters that were completely off limits to someone who grew up in the southern half of Indiana in a pretty religious context. And it took me something like nearly a decade from the first time I encountered that sign, that creative lift sign, that I, and got curious about it, that I would have enough courage to follow that extremely intense curiosity and obsession with this work properly to fall into that rabbit hole and realize, wait a second, this isn't a rabbit hole, this is an elevator. Because it was labeled with a different name. And in this episode, I want to encourage you to see if any of your obsessions, distractions, and maybe, yes, even temptations may have some creative genius waiting on the other side, trusting some of those inclinations uh, and, and, and seeing how far it, it goes. 
Do you have those kind of white rabbits in your life that you're desperately curious to chase? If you're like me, you can hear them faintly in the distance calling, you're late, you're late for a very important date with your genius. Let's see how far the rabbit hole goes. Let's start to push the button, the up button, and see just where it takes us. disclaimer before we hop into chapter two. I just want to say there's a difference between a creative obsession or an obsession and a, uh, a compulsive addiction. You know, there are, there are those kinds of obsessions that aren't your creative genius. They're self-destructive. They're things that hurt you. Um, there is a difference. It's not my job to sit here and tell you how to discern or, or what moral ethical code you should um, create and say, this is a, this is an obsession that's harmful to me. This is a, a life-giving creative genius of an obsession and, and of a fascination. Um, that is your job, but I just didn't want to co-sign wholesale anything you're obsessed with. That's your genius. That's not what I mean. Um, and I think you got to be very discerning and careful about that. And I just want to, I want to have said that. Uh, so I'm saying that. So there I said it. Chapter two, wrong place at the right time. So you've realized like, hey, my creative genius was hiding behind these other aliases and you start identifying them. What happens when you realize like they seemingly have nothing to do with your creative practice, that you the, the creative journey that you have been on for years. What do you do then? The second thing you got to do is realize that being in the wrong place at the right time is a gift. It is a powerful spot to find yourself in. Uh, and, and that's what the next thing uh, you really have to give your time to after you figure out some of these uh, geniuses. So Christian Bale, do you know this chap? He is an A-list movie star. You've probably seen him in Christopher Nolan's Batman movies as, as Batman or his iconic role in the film American Psycho or maybe The Magician in The Prestige with Hugh Jackman or The Fighter with Mark Wahlberg or The Promise with Oscar Isaac. So many definitive films that start with the word the. He's the kind of mega superstar that's the fighter. He's not just a fighter. He's the prestige, the promise. If he was a pro wrestler and I was like the announcer, that's how I would introduce Christian Bale. That's how massive this creator is. The fighter, the prestige, the promise, Christian Bale. I like how they get so many extra syllables out out of it when when they're announcing a fight like that. Every syllable is just another nail in the opponent's coffin, man. Okay, but you know him. You've probably heard of this guy, uh, Christian Bale, A-list celebrity, but did you know what his favorite film actually is? You're probably thinking like The Godfather, a classic, or Gone with the Wind, Maybe something mind-melting like being John Malkovich or something brutal, Seven, you know, Brad Pitt, that, that flick, or Requiem for a Dream maybe. Like I could see all, any, those are my guesses that, I, that I'm thinking. But 
None of those are his favorite film. It's actually the 1997 classic Beverly Hills Ninja starring, of course, Chris Farley um, and Chris Rock. Two incredible Chris's in one film. Yeah. Just let that sink in. That's the opener of this idea of the wrong uh, place at the right time. Because what the heck, man? Like, seriously, go look it up. You will find. Like, how? How is this legendary actor's favorite movie, Beverly Hills Ninja? A lot of Chris Farley fans doesn't, don't even like that movie, right? Like, what the heck? When I heard this, it just massively struck me as uh, not unusual, actually, because the further I study creativity and, and study my creative heroes, the more often that I find that a creator's genius or obsession, as we're calling it today, is often not obviously connected to their medium. Like Christian Bale is not a cinema-obsessed actor. Like that's not where his obsession comes from. But that's pretty peculiar. We don't usually think of being a, a, an incredible legendary creator that's not also a super fan of the medium that they work within. February, I went to a podcast fest called On Air, and I saw this same occurrence in a different creator that I admire. Uh, her name is Hannah Rosen. She was previously a co-host on one of my all-time favorite podcasts, Invisibilia. You guys know how I like invisible stuff. Um, and she was doing a presentation of a new podcast that she was producing called Cover Story, which is a show for New York Magazine that covers the dark side of the new psychedelic renaissance that you've probably heard a ton about. Season one, I listened to the whole thing. It was incredible and chilling. And um, one of the most profound aspects of the show is that they make this really surprising move to throughout the season just slowly pass off a considerable amount of the storytelling and hosting duties to the actual victim in the story. And it's a very unorthodox kind of move in journalism to let the, the, the subject also be the person telling the story. And so they pass off this role um, to the person that the story's about, and they let them tell their own story. And so in this story about a woman who gets abused and, and taken advantage of within this new psychedelic movement, um, instead of just doing the traditional journalistic thing and let the host tell that story, they support this woman with their journalistic tools so that she can host and tell her story. It's kind of like if you're listening to This American Life, an episode of that, and it's a miraculous story of a chef that changed the city's whole school lunches program. But instead of having Ira Glass tell the story, the whole thing is hosted by that chef. It's pretty innovative. It's very, I was, you know, very kind of uh, blown away and taken with the idea. And you know, she, uh, Hannah Rosen said that she had the idea because she'd recently become obsessed with the filmmaker Chloe Zhao. Um, Chloe Zhao, 
you know, she makes movies like Nomadland with Francis McDormand and many of the actors in Chloe Zhao's movies aren't actually actors at all. Like when they did this story, uh, Nomadland about modern day nomads who live in their cars and vans in these little communities in, in, in the desert. And they work seasonally at places like Amazon, like fulfillment facilities. Um, in this film, many of the actors that are playing these nomads are actually nomads working in these facilities. And they blur the fact and fiction and the difference between a movie and a documentary in this way. And it's really innovative and interesting. And Hannah Rosen became so obsessed with this filmmaker that she wished she could make movies like that. She, she's like, ah, I want to do this. You ever feel that creative frustration when you really fall in love with something, but it's just so nothing to do with what you do. And, and Hannah was in the same category like she makes radio she makes podcasts she's a producer of that medium and all she could do with this obsession is shoehorn it into her creative practice but the story that hannah told of this genius move to take this idea that chloe zhao was doing in film and start applying it to the podcasting world uh hannah didn't make it sound like it was innovation or genius like she just seemed frustrated. You know, that was the word that she used. To me, Hannah made it sound as if like the process was frustrating and awkward and even that she might have been unsure of whether it worked. But on the outside, as the audience, I think everybody else felt totally different. The people listening felt different. I, I have to believe what felt like shoehorning an obsession into the work from the inside felt like cross-pollinating innovation, genius from the outside. The results were a newly profound breakthrough in the podcasting space. Now, I believe that Christian Bale and Hannah Rosen actually have something in common here. They create from their genius, from their obsession, even though their obsession isn't the medium they create within. And I don't think that it's not just not a problem, but maybe that that is where profound innovation and in, in profound work comes from. I have seen this pattern in so many creators you know, they lose their interest in their medium as the, just as they're getting good, as their career unfolds, they start to not really care anymore about the work at all. They start finding a new thing to be obsessed by. And some people even, you don't read about these stories as much, drop their skill altogether. One person that comes to mind is uh, Tom DeLonge from Blink-182 and Angels and Airwaves. Like he goes, he's doing this huge music career, massive thing at the top of his game. And he gives up because he gets obsessed with aliens. And I'm like, man, what would it have looked like if he would have thought like maybe the skill is the music, but that's not the obsession. The medium might be podcasting, but the obsession is seeing someone tell their own story. The skill might be acting, but I don't really care about film. I care about people or I care about stories or I care about, you know, whatever else it might be. In fact, 
I wonder what it would look like. Would we have all these Blink-182 albums about aliens that were super dope? Like, I don't know. Like, I wonder how things might have been different. If Tom DeLong saw the word frustration as a different word for a, the same thing, this creative frustration was actually a creative impulse. Like, what if that creative impulse is just creative frustration. And that's great news because we're all freaking frustrated as creators. It goes with the territory. You ever read that magazine? They used to do um, these massive long form interviews with creators called The Great Discontent. I think they actually just relaunched and they're called The Great Discontent because man, creators sure are discontent. But what if that word is just another word for impulse, another word for creative genius. I saw a clip recently where Bjork is saying that music is just communication for her. Like, whereas the medium of her everyday speech feels awkward, she feels unable to connect with regular words, music is a medium in which this frustrated impulse to communicate can be released. This frustrating process that, you know, the creator often feels, it feels like shoehorning uh, awkwardly, just trying to stuff this thing that you're into and the thing that you already know how to do because you don't want to learn a new skill or you don't want to start from scratch and it just feels awful and awkward. Like that shoehorning is recognized as one of the primary modes of innovation, Shoehorning is another word for innovation, and another word for that type of innovation is called cross-pollinating. But I actually like the word shoehorning. That's that's why I've said it. Shoehorning. I I think we need to change the definition of it, not to innovation, but maybe to like the basketball court that they're all running around. It's making that crazy noise. Quit shoehorning in here, man driving me mad with all the shoehorning going on around here. Um, but shoehorning is actually a, a type of innovation called cross-pollination. So in their article, Perfecting Cross-Pollination by Harvard Business Review, um, they highlight cross-pollination as this key ingredient in the innovation of MIT professor, legendary MIT innovator, Robert Langer, who over the past 30 years, they say, Langer has published 780 papers, received 500 patents, and started a dozen of extremely successful firms. How did he do this? How did they do this? That's right, because it was they. They did it by shoehorning. No, they're not playing basketball, man. They're doing it by cross-pollinating because his whole team is made up of people with different obsessions. His whole team, he made sure, were cherry-picked from completely different disciplines, but brought together, working together. Why does this matter to you? I mean, I'm assuming that you are not like Robert Langer trying to create patents in spaces like chemical engineering. But what I do suspect is that you have real creative obsession rabbit holes that do not seem to fit your medium of choice uh, or that don't seem to work with the creative journey that you've been on laboring on for a long time. And that initially these obsessions seemed like creative frustrations. 
And when you recognize creative frustration as a creative impulse, all of a sudden you're going to be able to do really interesting, cool things like Robert Langer's team who did all this incredible work by cross pollinating, by shoehorning. This kind of frustrated creative obsession, it, it seems like a quintessential hallmark of the creative in my opinion. Okay, chapter three, the call to adventure, do the shoehorn. Like it's like it's a dance. Here's your creative prompt for this week. What would it look like for you to take your most developed creative skill, no matter how sick of it you might be, no matter how inspiring, uninspiring you find it and filter your latest obsession through it, force it in there with your, with your shoe, your creative shoehorning. Uh, when I became obsessed with Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung and storytelling, storytelling, initially I became kind of disillusioned with the fact that I didn't choose the path of becoming some kind of writer. But over the years, I've come to see illustration as its own form of storytelling as a, just a different form of writing. My favorite definition of illustration has become writing with pictures. Now this definition kind of initially hit me as like, oh, I love it, but it sounds just like novel or poetic or fanciful, but it's not practically true. It's not the, the thing that I love. But that frustration with illustration acted as fuel. And, and, and I kept thinking, how can I filter? How can I shoehorn? How can I force and filter this into my, how can I get my story passion through this work? And I kept digging every single thing that I made. Like I, I tried to tell a story and eventually I found that images, the symbols in the story are as important to bringing the life, uh, bringing the story to life as the words. And that, and I don't mean like in any impractical mystical way. I mean, they're one of the most satisfying storytelling devices. Uh, and it took me forever to figure this out and actually st just start to embody it in my own work. My favorite example of how pictures or symbols or, or, uh, or, or illustrations, um, illustrate the story and write the story, uh, in, in one of the most powerful ways is the movie iron giant. So we've, we've talked about this on the show before, um, in his book, invisible ink story expert, Brian McDonald explains that the point of the movie iron giant is you are who you choose to be. And everything serves this point, even the choice to make the movie about a robot. The robot is an illustration of this point as an image, as a symbol. It's a symbol of the point of the movie and it makes the movie poignant. That is what makes the point come to life is this illustration of the robot because the robot is the perfect thing to illuminate this point because it's the opposite. It's what we think of as the opposite, the contrast. The robot is literally programmed with code to be a killer. And so if it can choose, if a robot can choose and reason its way to be something else, if it can choose who it wants to be, we can too. 
regardless of our species, our DNA, or even our culture, regardless of our programming, like this robot, we can choose who we want to be. And the robot is the perfect symbol. It's what makes the story, this fiction, it makes it come to life in a way that's different than if I just told you, you, you are who you choose to be. That's where the power is. And his dramatic freeing of the code is the perfect manifestation of this archetype. This framework that I kind of stumbled upon, this archetypal way of thinking of illustration is the most inspiring take on illustration that I have ever encountered to date. And, and it, for a long time, what felt like shoehorning is starting to feel like, oh, I'm actually getting somewhere creatively with this thing. Like just a couple of weeks ago, I created an, an image with this approach in mind and I was particularly proud of it. It's a two-headed monster with the lettering that reads, quit fighting yourself. Now, that th the point of that episode, it was artwork for an episode. The point of that episode was essentially that you have multiple competing voices in your head. That, And as I was working through the kind of symbols that I wanted to use to illuminate this idea of like, you're not just one person. There's, you don't have just, you're not just trying to go just one way. You actually have different parts of you that wants to go multiple ways. And it's part of the reason you're not getting anywhere. I realized like this idea of a two-headed monster isn't just a cool thing. It's like, cool, that monster has two heads. It's actually an, an archetypal symbol that gets at the fact that we within ourselves have a duality of ego and shadow and spirit and animal, and that we are our own greatest obstacle, that there are multiple heads inside of our head, multiple minds. There are, there is a two headed monster, or a three headed monster within us. And so like the robot, it's a story device that brings this hidden metaphoric truth into a literal physical form that you can kind of interact with in a more intuitive way. It brings it to life. It takes something we understand with our heads and it makes us feel it in our hearts, which is my personal definition of what a story is here to do. So, and it's only a tiny version of that. Like not everybody liked that image, but I did. It satisfied that creative impulse for me. And that's, as you know, what really counts. So here's my challenge to you. Pause what you're doing. Get off the hamster wheel. Take the dogs out for a walk. Sit in the bath. Get to the bottom of what is your current obsession? Not your latest whim, but like when you swish it around in your noggin, what lights you on fire? All right, you got it. Now your creative prompt is to attempt to shoehorn this obsession into the medium that you are already most skilled and familiar with. It took me years to write a story with a picture. And I still feel as though I've got light years to go to keep, and that's great. Cause that's just a thing. Like I can keep scratching that itch for a long time. That's very, that's a great runway for a creator. But when you hear me that it, that I say it took years to like get somewhere with this, I want you to know that the satisfaction and pleasure of shoe, try, just attempting to shoehorn my obsession through my creative medium was deeply satisfying from the very first time I attempted it. And that kind of satisfaction and, and excitement may just be the thing you need to shoehorn a little extra inspiration and in, in a breath of fresh air into your creative practice.
So what, what we had is number one is you got to know that genius goes by a lot of different names and some of those names might be really misleading and uh, you got to look behind those elevator doors. That's what falling up was all about. It's this idea that uh, yeah, those rabbit holes, you fall up them to the creative heights. <laughs> anyway, second thing you got to do is realize you might be in the wrong place at the right time and there's no sweeter spot to be. That frustration is your fuel. Use it and then of course, do the shoehorn. Figure out what you're obsessed with right now and shoehorn it through your most uh, proficient creative skill. That's, that's the whole episode. And it comes down to this, you know, the word genius in Roman times meant a, a guiding spirit. That was your genius. And it makes sense because this obsession, it feels like something you're not in control of. Like you don't know why you're interested. You don't, you didn't choose to be interested in it. Those things are sometimes like the guilty pleasures. Cause you're like, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't know why I like this thing, but the power is in trusting yourself. I actually think that's what Alice in Wonderland, you know, falling down the rabbit hole, all that stuff. I feel like that's what it's all about. It's this idea of, you know, the, the world of grownups. It's a, it's a, it's a coming of age kind of story. The world of grownups is very confusing because nobody is listening to their inner voice. They're just doing what, you know, they're just acting the way that it always has been. And they're all their, their manners and all this stuff. It's just total madness because no one is trusting themselves. No one is listening to their inner voice. And Alice even says, I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom take it. And it's time to take that advice. It's time to take that lift up to the creative heights and you're only gonna do it if you will trust yourself and trust that inner genius that's begging you to fall up that rabbit hole. Massive thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our jingle and theme music. Huge thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing the show and, and the sound effects and all the extra um, twinkles and bells um thanks to the creative pep talk team ryan appleton sophie miller katie chandler for all other content um, and um, podcast assistance thanks to everyone for listening and until we speak again stay pepped up